I'm going to give the clicker to Nick because he's going to start. A, a good friend of mine says you should always give it to somebody in the audience so <laughs> they can get through them faster. It's a, it's a, a, good, a good idea. So um, I'm Nick Parker. I'm an economist at the University of Wisconsin. I'm also the Eileen and Morton Harris Visiting Fellow here at Hoover. And one of my main uh, research and teaching specialties is in environment and resource economics. Um, Thanks have been given to the Blank Foundation. We're very grateful for their support of this conference and this program. Um, but I want to point out uh, two people, uh, Todd Graham and Peter Brown, who are in the audience representing Blank, who traveled from the great state of Montana to be here. And I typically think of that as a big sacrifice because that's a beautiful place. But then I, I looked, uh, Terry, at my phone this morning, and it looked like Bozeman was negative 20 today. So maybe, maybe not so much of a sacrifice, Todd. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to I want to uh, start um, with a quote from Ambrose Bierce, who's a, a writer from the 19th century, and he defined an economist as a scoundrel with faulty vision who makes him see things as they are rather than how they should be. And so Terry and I might object to the word scoundrel, but I think otherwise it's kind of dead on. Um, and I think it um, highlights the importance of thinking realistically about scarcity and trade-offs with respect to the environment. And so, um, and so when we think about how things are rather than how they ought to be, we know that there's trade-offs. Burning coal brings reliable energy supplies, but dirty air and other pollution problems. More water for irrigation um, can bring more uh, crop production, more agricultural industry, um, but, but less habitat for fish, or more wolves, something I've studied, um, brings more cost to livestock owners. So we, so we have trade-offs, and they're important, and it's because of scarcity. And there's, there's environmental trade-offs, too. So you know some resource uses come at the expense of economic prosperity, but they also trade off with environmental um, resources in different shades of green directly. So I have an image here of EVs charging um, in a lithium-ion mine. And so if we have a mandate to accelerate the use of electric vehicles, we are going to have more lithium-ion mining. And that has its environmental consequences. So um, as the great philosopher Kermit the Frog said, uh, it's not easy being green, and it's not. Well, uh, it, it's easy to have jokes about economists, and I always carry this economist hat with me. Uh, the economist being a person who's pretty good with numbers but doesn't have enough personality to be an accountant. And uh, uh, and it's graphs like this that we can't resist having. Uh, and you know, for Nick and me, this is how to think clearly about uh, about uh, markets versus mandates. And this this graph is quite simple. And I always had my classes if I did this, they know it meant if the marginal benefits are greater than the marginal costs, do it. And that's a simple statement. The only question is, what are the marginal benefits and marginal costs? Uh, and it, it, we we treat it as if there's this. St st 
stationary set of, of, of lines that somehow we can know. And a lot of economists spend time trying to estimate what those costs and benefits are and, and find the intersection point where we get as efficient as possible. Uh, even if we can find them, however, they're always moving around, so we have to worry about the dynamics of any system and, and uh, uh, how that might work. And, and, and for that reason, uh, I think it's, it's useful to separate markets versus mandates in the context of processes versus rules. Uh, markets are about moving resources around to changing values. Uh, it, it, they're about uh, looking at what the values are for that benefit curve and what the costs are for the cost curve and making adjustments. Uh, mandates, on the other hand, are usually rules set by through politics and administrators, uh, and they are a command and control. This is where we're going to be. This is where we are. We need to get this amount. Uh, and yet, uh, my good friend, uh, uh, no, I forgot his name, uh, 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 an ecologist always uh, used to say, the that the environment is a moving picture, not a Kodachrome moment. And because it's a moving picture, we need to ha have some way to adjust to changes. Uh, the, the problems, of course, that come with uh, 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 mandates are, are well captured. I, uh, I love the f words that uh, A.C. Pagu used. Uh, there are sometimes incidental disservices that can't be accounted for i.e., I impose costs on you, that's an incidental disservice and you can't make me pay. Or there may be incidental services that I provide and you get them. So I love the flowery language of, of A.C. Pagu. Much later, uh, Ronald Coase uh, taught economists to think really differently about, uh, he didn't focus on environmental problems, but to think about the role that markets play. And, uh, and he was very, uh, was at the Chicago School, and, and, and obviously, uh, if you read his works, uh, he tends to be pretty, uh, have a favorable opinion of markets. But he didn't think they were a panacea, and he believed that, you know, there were times when you just had to use mandates. And uh, there, there, there are a few cases that we think are, are particularly important. So here's cases where uh, incidental services or disservices from economic activity may have been pronounced. You know, of course, economics jargon has new words for those uh, externalities. Is is a word that's often used to describe what Co or what uh, Pigot was calling incidental services and disservices. But here's two examples of how mandates um, may have helped uh, America or did help America solve two of its trickiest. Uh, environmental problems. So on the left is a is an image of wildlife markets, and so in the period, particularly in the late uh, 19th century, from 1850 to 1900, this was coined the age of extermination, where lots of American wildlife species were decimated. Um, this is something that I'm writing about and studying with Dean Luke, who's uh, an economist from Indiana University who's here. Um, but on the right is an image of, I think, smog in LA in the mid-20th mid century, um, and what you would call excess, what I would call excessive air pollution. Um, so these problems prove difficult to solve, 
uh, using markets. As Coast may have predicted, uh, the transaction costs of doing that were high. In the case of wildlife, um, states had banned commercial hunting and they created regulatory agencies around the turn of the century to regulate commercial activity and that closed open access and, and maybe a good example of a successful mandate. In the case of air quality, of course many states uh, were uh, creating uh, state level air quality or air control boards in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. The federal government passed the Clean Air Act first in 1963 with a major amendment in 1970. Um, and these were initially command and control uh, rules on emissions. They were what we would call mandates. Um, so then the question is, were mandates like this necessary? Are they successful? Are there other cases where mandates might be necessary and where we might predict they're successful? Um, I think the answer uh, in the case of both is yes, but with some nuances and some qualifications. Um, so in the case of the Clean Air Act, if you look at um, the graph on the left, um, passage around the 1970s, you can see a major decline in sulfur dioxide emissions, which is one of the main air pollutants that it was targeted. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly on that measure, the Clean Air Act was, was successful. But if you look at cost-benefit analyses of it, say early on in the 1970s, 1980s, even through to about 1995 or so, these were command and control regulations that were extremely costly. And the cost fell significantly when sulfur uh, acid rain trading programs were introduced to the program in the 1990s. And at that point, really, the benefits started to, started to swamp the cost. So you had a regulation for air quality that allowed for market at trading, and, and then I would call it quite successful um, for dealing with a sticky problem. Um, in the case of uh, the wildlife uh, decimation, these were state-level agencies that were created. They banned commercial hunting, um, and they began to regulate recreational wildlife. Um, and if you look at the image here, this is stunning to me, U.S. deer populations. The, the ubiquitous white-tailed deer was almost extinct around 1900, and its numbers have rebounded to close to what it was uh, in the 1700s. And, and so maybe we have way too many deer, perhaps, um, but this was a policy that certainly dealt with the, the, the um, loss of wildlife. Let me, let me point out one thing about the necessary condition. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons the, the state intervention into the wild really problem was necessary is because governments and states were not respecting private property rights against trespass. So there's some evidence, and I have in work I'm doing with Dean Luke, that in cases where trespass laws were respected, there was some opportunities for private markets to solve this problem. And that's a bigger theme Terry and I will get to later in this talk and in this project is you know, there's lots of cases where governments make it difficult for markets to form. And you might observe a mandate and you think it's necessary, but maybe it's because the, the government actually suppressed the markets that otherwise could have taken place. Um, finally, on this point, um, 
you know, I, I ask if these mandates were too successful. So Terry showed you the marginal benefits and marginal costs, and you know, there's some bliss point where the two meet, and you can have too little pollution, you can have too much pollution. Well, you can have too many deer, it turns out. You can have too many elk. Um, and this is an image of a, a deer vehicle or an elk vehicle collision that I was involved in this summer. Many people are involved in, and it's because you have this overpopulation, this overabundant species, that the regulator is not incentivized to decrease. And so, well, why is the regulator not incentivized to decrease? Well, there's strong constituencies that have formed that have captured the agency's interests. Those are typically recreational hunters, and the agency pays attention to its constituency that has effectively captured it and, enjoy, and kind of ignores the broader implications of its resource um, regulatory strategies. And so I don't think this is at all unique, but it's a particularly acute example of, of what can go wrong when regulatory mandates pick the wrong quantity. Um, and so that circles us back to both Coase and Pagu. Um, and you may not be surprised that Coase was skeptical about um, the prospects for, uh, for, for mandates. He expressed concern about the governmental administrative machine being extremely cost costly. Um, you might be more surprised that Pagu, uh, who as some have in environmental economics have championed as the, as the intellectual force behind regulating markets, he was also not sanguine about the prospects for mandates. In fact, he said, we cannot expect that any public authority will attain or even wholeheartedly seek the ideals that uh, economists can imagine with their blackboards. And so to summarize their critiques, bureaucratic administration can be slow and efficient. Regulatory agencies can be captured by interests um, that they regulate, and that could be oil interests, that could be electricity utilities, that could be renewable companies, all kinds of interests. And politicians use mandates to pursue political goals. Um, one case in point, Terry, uh, I think, is you know you think about a, a ban on electric electric vehicles forecasted into 2035. So that seems a little safe to me for politicians who may not be up for re-election by 2035 or will be pursuing other things. So you get some political benefit of passing a ban, but then don't deal with the consequences politically. Um, one, one other comment on mandates. So mandates can have unwanted effects, and they often do, especially when we're talking about bans. Um, I have a list here. Um, there's evidence in the economics literature that bans on plastic bags, single-use uh, bans on carry-out bags in grocery stores, cause consumers to substitute and buy other kinds of uh, uh, plastic bags, like trash bags. In fact, a visitor at the Hoover Institution this week, Rebecca Taylor, who's a Campbell fellow, hi, hi Becca, um, has studied this and found evidence that you know, the, the bans cause plastic use to, in some cases, to go up. There's evidence that fracking bans, uh, fracking for natural gas, have uh, uh, decreased local air quality because they've caused more coal to be burned. 
and coal is of course dirty and causes health consequences. Um, research that the Endangered Species Act causes landowners to preemptively destroy habitat um, to avoid being regulated uh, and so on. There's evidence you know, that I've written about that efforts to um, keep people safe in Africa by regulating companies' purchases of blood minerals has actually caused more violence, more conflict. So we could go on. There's a lot of lit, there, there's a lot of cases where sanctions literally backfire. They make things worse uh, than if the than if the uh, mandate didn't exist. And then, and finally, I'll close in this discussion of mandates um, with a quote from our colleague at Hoover, Tom, Thomas Sowell, and I think he suffered. Um, from what Ambrose Bierce call, called the faulty vision of economists uh, as well because he said, look, policies need to be analyzed in terms of the incentives they create rather than the hopes that inspire them. And we certainly need to do that uh, with mandates as the list I just um, described, uh, I think, I think uh, makes case in point. Well, I return to the other side of the coin, uh, markets. Uh, interestingly, The Economist in 2005 uh, touted markets as uh, 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 something we needed to focus on if we're going to deal with environmental issues. And uh, the good news is uh, there are, are some wonderful examples of how markets are being harnessed by environmental groups. My good friend Fred Krupp uh, with Environmental Defense Fund once told me when he went to work there, he's a lawyer, and he said, when I went to work there, our motto was, bear with me, uh, sue the bastards. Uh, and now, if you look clear carefully, it's finding ways that work. And Fred's very much a pragmatist in that way and, and looks, used the economic lens as, as the Nature Conservancy suggests. So the notion that markets can be harnessed for some of these things as opposed to just more of an alphabet soup in Washington, D.C. is growing. And two quick examples. I, one of my favorites is, is the picture here of, of uh, the Nature Conservancy's use of crowdsourcing to provide water for uh, waterfowl as it mig migrates through the Delta. They have contracts with rice farmers. Uh, which allow them when people get on their phone apps and say there are birds over here in the northeast quadrant of whatever uh, and there isn't water, the Nature Conservancy can literally just punch a button and water will be transferred over there because they have contracts with the rice farmers to move that water around. Uh, it's, a, it's a great great example of how our, our technology is, is being married with the uh, with with the potential to adjust to the t changing uh, uh, values that exist in the in the uh, picture of uh, marginal benefits and marginal costs. Nick, you've been in, in uh, around Australia a bit more recently, and uh, you may say a few words about the Barrier Reef. Oh, when I was in uh, New Zealand for sabbatical, I, I learned about this market on the Great Barrier Reef, where the World Wildlife Fund was paying um, fishermen to change their behavior to keep nets away from sensitive habitat areas. And part of this was designed to conserve hammerhead sharks, but also the, if I pronounce this right, the du dugong, 
which is like a sea cow, which is it's threatened. It's a threatened species. And so they, they made these contracts, um, and it took a while to build trust. It took a while for the fishermen to want to do business with the World Wildlife Fund, and the World Wildlife Fund had to talk some of its funders into um, being willing to pay fishermen uh, to do this and let the markets work. But it, it, it's successful, as this quote from the World Wildlife Fund uh, suggests, it was a practical way to remove the threat of gill nets, incredibly important for the species. So we, Terry and I actually have, we, when we talked about examples to give, I mean, we, we thought of 20. Um, and so it's hard to pick. And there's a session later with uh, Buzz Thompson and Chris Costello where we will talk more about uh, markets for the environment. Yeah, uh, it's really fun to find these these examples, and uh, and they're they're people often say when I present these uh, to students or various audiences, well you've you know you picked the low hanging fruit. Of course, uh, it's so obvious how you could do markets for for wildlife in the delta. It's not obvious until somebody does it. Uh, it's obvious that uh, you know that somebody should build a, an electric car and and make money off of it, but somebody has to do it. It's not obvious until it's been done. Uh, and, and so with that, we should end, but it wouldn't be quite fair to end. I think we should turn to uh, a few statements about the, the mother of them all, if you will, climate change, and we'll come back to this later in the day. But this is one where it's, it's a little harder to say, well, what's the market uh, going to be for uh, dealing with climate change. And I th I, for me, I, I, I actually edited a book for the Hoover Press on adapt and be adept. And what I came to understand from people like Matt Kahn, for example, that climate change is really about risks, risks to people and property. And and uh, I was just uh, in Hawaii at a conference, and, and uh, as I was talking with one of the state Supreme Court judges, Justices, and they have a lawsuit regarding their uh, constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment and the state's uh, inability to provide that because it's uh, using too much fossil fuels. Uh, and and the, the justice, you know, said it's easy to say, well, you know, we can't make a lot of difference with, with uh, uh, cutting fossil fuels. It's not going to have a big effect on, on temperatures. And, and she said, you know, but where an island. We care about the risk to us. Uh, the good news about it being risks is that, uh, about thinking it in terms of risks, is owners uh, of property are the ones who are at risk, and, and, and that gives them an incentive to think about how they might deal with it. And we'll talk more about uh, how land markets, water markets, finance markets are helping us adapt to risk. Uh, and and What's important, I think, is to think of ways that markets can be harnessed to m incentivize mitigation. We'll cover many of these as the day goes on in much more detail with people who are uh, m much more uh, experts at, at these issues than I. And uh, I think you'll find their presentations quite uh, uh, impressive and, and uh, useful. With that, let me just ask quickly if there are any questions. We're going to we're already off to a bad start, but we we're directing the conference so we can take all the time we want. Uh, uh, any questions out there that we might handle before we uh, do a quick changeover up here? And, uh, 
in the back. Uh, hi. Um, um, just a basic question I observed. I potentially spent most of my life in Michigan working for General Motors. And as an engineer, I started, uh, decided to join the electric car revolution. And then I realized that the materials that are being used for electric cars are creating an environmental problem. So uh, the question is, how do we get the emotions out of this conversation? Because there are many sides to this conversation. And then bring people together to really understand what is the economics behind this thing that will drive this eventually to a successful conclusion? Uh, another question? I have a similar way of punting on that. There's, there's a session this afternoon, and hopefully you'll stay for the whole event, um, but certainly for it, that is going to talk about rhetoric um, about about environmental problems, including climate change, and you know where you know where beliefs come from, how they're formed, what kind of discussions we have about these things in the media, and and what maybe could be done to make those discussions more um, connected to facts. So that's my point. Stay tuned. Stay with us. I guess I would just add that uh, I'm involved, uh, I always hate to call myself an expert witness, I'm not sure I'm the expert, but I am the witness, uh, in a lawsuit in Montana that's the, like the one in, in Hawaii. We have a clause in our constitution that guarantees the citizens of the state a right to a clean and healthful environment. The trust for our children's future has sued the state over uh, a, a law and a, and a set of policies that they claim to be uh, depriving the youth from this clean and healthful environment. What I find interesting in reading the, the uh, uh, plaintiff briefs is is the extent to which there's there is this emotion and you know it, it's often called an existential threat and these these uh, youth in this case are are clearly upset I mean they're not just you know they're not just looking for a chance to get get fame and glory that they really have visceral reactions that are are uh, that bother them uh, uh, and uh, you know I I, I can't say they shouldn't have them. Uh, they do have them, and, and I think the way to deal with them is to better understand the science behind the predictions, the science that tells us uh, what's what's really happening with, with climate and climate change. And uh, for me, you know, look at the data, and if you still want to, you know, gnash your teeth, that's what you'll do, but, uh, but do it based on the data. Uh, well, I have an easier question. This is regarding your uh, rice farmers, for example. Uh, they obviously derived the benefit from a contract with what was that uh, environmental organization, World Wildlife Fund, right? Uh, Nature Conservancy. So they derived benefit, they are selling water to them uh, from the contract that they have with the state or federal government. Does this mean that their contracts undervalue the water? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, isn't that what governments do? <coughs> Provide us things <laughs> for, uh, yeah. Uh, so they're, 
Two, two important points in the water markets. Uh, one, and I know I saw Buzz Thompson come in, so uh, I'll be happy to turn it over to him. But uh, one is uh, the, the, the some of these rights at least are are rights that go back to the mining days or prior appropriation. They're uh, they they own it. Uh, but then others are contracts with the government and uh, dealing with with both state and federal agencies and. And uh, if you're if you're getting the water from the agency at X and you can sell it at 2x, uh, the important question is. Uh, so one side of the coin is, well, that's just a big windfall to the person who's selling the X at 2x. But the other side of it is. Uh, we're solving an environmental problem, in this case, water for birds, uh, without a lot of conflict and controversy, and getting us closer to MB equals MC. So economists uh, focus much more on that, I think, than the redistribution that comes from uh, government-supported uh, prices that are low. One last question back here, if you'd, if you'd like. Yep. There's a mic. If ah, thank you. Um, question about dealing with ex externalities. I'm thinking about um, you know the premise that owners of at-risk property adapt, um, and the scenario I'm thinking about is a cross-border one where if I'm a resident of the Marshall Islands and I own property there, I'm at risk for sea level rise. But there's really not much that I can do about addressing that sea level rise. So um, is there going to be a discussion about dealing with those types of externalities? You can think of plenty of examples where the, uh, the person or people who are at the disadvantage um, in a given situation um, with an environmental problem don't have the wherewithal to address that problem. And it's actually caused, you know, as externalities work, by, um, by a third party. Well, we'll definitely have more discussion of, of the uh, effects of climate change on, on sea level rise and, and islands in particular. My, my response to uh, the specific case of that uh, that you're, I think, really referring to, which is what if you don't have the wherewithal to deal with this? Uh, if, if, if I have beachfront property in Miami uh, and the water's lapping at my feet, I probably can do something about it. I can sell it at a discount and move to Montana where we're not going to have to work about sea level rise, negative 20 is another issue. But uh, uh, but if you don't have the wherewithal, what what do you do? And and, and here's where I guess it did come under mandates. Here's why I always say a role for government is to deal with uh, unequal income distribution issues. And uh, we, who are the rich countries, I think have some obligation to deal with the, the people who bear the burden of, 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 of climate change due to us being rich uh, as a result of being able to burn carbon. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's my takeaway. You know, we should find ways to help them deal with it. And it might not be, might mean pack them up and move them, but, uh, but we have to, I, I think we have a moral obligation to deal with that problem. 
Well, with that, let's uh, let's quit and uh, do a quick change. You can run out. Well, you can't bring your coffee in, so uh, let's do a quick switch around up here uh, to get the next panel up and uh, uh, try to get back on track. So, thank you very much. Thank you.